Let's turn to uh, John chapter 14. And I do, I do want to say that one thing is a little bit not accurate in your, in your bulletins, and that is that uh, it tells us in the message, uh, the title, and also that we are going to do verses 15 through 24. There's a slight revision. We're going to do verses 15 through 18. But then again, most of you expect something like that happen. So, uh, as the Lord leads, we are going to focus a little bit more on certain things that need to be looked at in this particular passage. What we need to remember before we begin to read is where Jesus is and when these things are happening and being said. Jesus is with his disciples in a room in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover supper. He is hours away from going to the cross. Probably not hours any longer, but minutes. And he's spending a very precious and intimate time with his disciples by the things that he is sharing with them. In this passage, he says to them, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Now, what did the Lord have to impart to these weary and confused followers of the Messiah of Israel on a night when nothing seemed to make sense, although the Lord had made his intentions and plans very clear to them? What was it that the Lord wanted to give to them before he goes to the cross. What would we want to give them? What would we want to give to anyone knowing where we're going in a few short hours? Jesus in the most precious and intimate moments that he had with the disciples before going to the cross spoke to them concerning subjects of major importance to them. Subjects that they needed to grasp before Jesus' death. And all of that even began back in chapter 13 at the very beginning and the onset of that particular chapter when they, meet, when they were meeting in, in, this, in, this, in this room for the Passover supper. Consider some of the things that he was imparting. He told them, the servant is not greater than his Lord. When did he say that to them? He said that to them when he was washing the very feet of the disciples. The servant is not greater than his Lord. As you see me do, you do also. And not so much in words, but in actions do we see Jesus' betrayal by Judas Iscariot. 
And then Jesus would speak of his departure from this world. Again, these are all important issues. The disciples needed to see or hear. And then he spoke to them. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now much of what, we, what we're going to speak about today is dealing with that issue of love. And then he spoke to them concerning his preparation of a place. I go to prepare a place for you, he said. A place for his followers. He spoke about his coming again to receive them unto himself, to receive all of his followers unto himself. Significant issue. It is then that he makes clear to them that he is God in the flesh when he says to them, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Making it very clear to his disciples. There's no other path. There's no other way. There's no other truth. And there's no other life but the life that the God of creation can give. And then he showed them, in spite of the statements made, show us the Father. He showed them the Father by the works that he did. So the Lord knew that they needed to grasp these truths that, that would help them through the many trials that they were about to face, not to mention what they would need to know and what they would need to believe as they would continue on in fulfilling the commission that they would later receive from the Lord to disciple the nations. That before he ascends into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection. But the greatest help the greatest help that these disciples would receive as believers in Jesus Christ and that we would receive as like-minded believers is the very presence of God himself in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This, we shall see, is prominent not only in the next few statements given by Jesus to his disciples, but also through much of the next two chapters. Now, there is good reason why we cannot disregard the context of what Jesus has said and is saying in our present text. I, here's a question for you. This is homework from last week. But what was the context? What was the context in which Jesus said, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Verses 13 and 14, right? What was the context? The context was in verse 12. Verse 12 where Jesus said, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Greater works. Well, what are we going to need to do the greater works of what Jesus did? We are going to need to pray. And we are going to need to ask. And we are going to need to ask in Christ's name. He said, Whatsoever you do, or I'm sorry, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. 
You see, don't get the idea that you know, the greater works are being done because we do them. <laughs> but he says, you will do greater works because I'll do them through you. But you ask in my name. So don't consider, as some people do, that Jesus just randomly made statements to the 11 disciples as things popped into his mind. Now, some of us might do that. I don't mean, I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at me, you know. Oh, things pop into my mind, I'll just go this way or that way, right? We sometimes all do that, don't we? Not Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what he wanted to do and what he wanted to say. He was specifically clear, succinct, and concise in each of his points to his disciples. That is why we should stay in context as we come to this next portion of the text, especially in verse 15 where he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's not a separate thought here, by the way. That's the point I'm trying to make with the context. If you love me, keep my commandments. When you consider, we're going to go back a couple of verses. When you consider the thrust of Jesus' statement in verses 13 and 14. When you consider what Jesus said when he said, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Consider that praying in the name of Jesus Christ is praying in his authority and in essence standing in his place. Fully identifying with our Lord in what is being asked. We need to understand that he isn't hearing our prayers because of who we are. No, we are presenting our petitions in Christ's merits and for Christ's glory. And a prayer that exalts and empowers God the Father to be glorified in the Son is a prayer that will always be answered. That is what we see there in verse 13. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Any prayer that exalts and empowers God the Father to be glorified in the Son is a prayer that will always be answered. That is why when we pray in the name of Jesus and for God's glory, we're not praying for selfish considerations. That's why I said that too many people take those two verses sometimes tremendously out of context. They say, see, whatever you ask in his name, he'll do it. He, he has to do it because he said he would. So whatever you want, go ahead and ask. But you forget the context. He's telling his disciples and his followers and his believers in him you'll do greater works than these that I've done but only remember you ask in my name and I'll do it I want to do it through you so we are praying for the father to be glorified and that in the Son. But as the Lord tells us in the text, it also depends. It also depends upon our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. If you show, I'm sorry, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
Take note that the promise is given to those who love him. There's a promise. If you love me, keep my commandment or my commandments. There's a promise coming. It's given to those who love him. And the full evidence of that love is keeping his commandments. In other words, love demonstrated by obedience. Our love for Jesus Christ is demonstrated by our obedience to God's commandments, to Jesus' commandments. So it is necessary then to to note that what Jesus was saying literally, what he was saying literally is this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That phrase, you will, in the Greek is the word teresete, teresete. It means if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Lord was not giving an optional commandment because to the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no option. This is not about, you know, pick and choose. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A believer loves Jesus. Therefore, that believer keeps his commandments. Now, when you consider the teachings of Jesus, love is always the first and the last, isn't it? Love is always the beginning and the end. Uh, and so if we, if we love him, we will do what he says. Because his love never ends for us. His love is everlasting. His love is unconditional. His agape love is unconditional love to us as believers. And so if we love him, we will do what he says, and we will do what he says with joy and gladness of heart. We will do what he says with heartfelt devotion and dedication because we want to, not because we have to, but we want to. I want you to listen to this great statement by John. Now, remember, John was there that night, okay? John was there, as a matter of fact, right next to Jesus. He was there, and, and, and you know, what, what we read here in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, is testament that he was listening to Jesus that night. Because listen to the words of John. He says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. To be born of God means you are born again of, of the Spirit of God. You are born of God. You are born again, as he had said to Nicodemus. We'll get to that in a moment. But whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him, if you love him that begat, in other words, that gave you this life, everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. What does that say? It's exactly what he said to the disciples. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another. And then he says in verse 2, going back, go, 1 John 5, he says, by this we know. Now this is a very important phrase that John uses throughout his letters. By this we know. This is how we know. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments and do the things that he says. Now, look at verse 3. Verse 3, is the, this is the verse that you want to underline in your Bibles. For this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not heavy loads. What did he tell us in Matthew chapter 11? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And, and, and John says his commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. They're not heavy laden. They're light. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have faith here. We have, we have obedience here. And we have love here. All mixed up in, 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 this, in this wonderful statement of John coming directly from Jesus in John chapter 14. And certainly if we love him, we will want to please him. And whatever may be his slightest request or his desire, we will want to accomplish for him and his glory because he is first and foremost the supreme object of such love. He is the supreme object of our love. Folks, let me, let me just tell you right now, there are a lot of people today going to churches in different uh, types of churches all across the nation at this very hour. And many of them are, are, are focused on loving the church, loving the denomination, or loving the, the outward appearances of the church. But folks, the church is the people. The church are the believers in Jesus Christ. We're not, to, we're not to love in the sense of a building or a, a denomination. or No, no, our love is toward Christ. Because he's the head of the church. He's the strength of the church. He's the savior of the people that, are the, that make up the body of Christ. He is the supreme object of our love. So remember the words of Hebrews 11 verse 6 where it says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. So you have to trust him. If you trust him, you love him. If you love him, you trust him. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Do you believe that he is? What do you believe that he is? He is the I am. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am all those things because I am. You must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So not only are we to love him, 
We're to diligently seek him, diligently seek him every day of our lives. So loving Jesus is not based upon emotions, even though it obviously involves emotions, because today, you know, I heard a song that, uh, that, that Bruce uh, does that I love so much, and he does it every time I, they did it last night, sitting right over here. I get emotional about these things. And I love the Lord all the more because of it. So, but love isn't based, our loving Jesus isn't based upon emotions. It isn't based on fluctuating experiences. But what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes we say, oh, I love the Lord today, isn't he great? And then tomorrow something happens, we say, oh, Lord, I don't love you that much anymore. Because you're not, you didn't meet my need. You're not listening to me. I prayed, you didn't do something for me. No. Our love of Jesus isn't based on fluctuating experiences like that. Loving Jesus is not based on rational or, or, or mental commitment. You know, making just a commitment from the mind, but not from the heart. Even though it does involve the mind. I mean, we need to be intelligent in our worship of the Lord. I believe, let's see, hold on. Still says that on the back of our bulletin. Our worship is to be intelligent. It requires us to have a mind that is rational and that thinks properly and right about God. No, it's, it's, it's a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart and of the spirit, a, ma a matter of, of man's most vital part, his innermost being, his affections and his will. That is what it's all about. And so in considering love and obedience, take notice that Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 brings to a close what what most people call the Sermon on the Mount with this particular statement. And listen, I think most of you know what Jesus said there in Matthew 7, 21. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. I have to tell you, that is, that's an ominous thought. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What do we call that? Obedience. Keeping the commandments. Jesus goes on and he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? Now, I have to stop here and ask you a question. Do you think that these people are going to stand before Jesus on the last day and, and actually lie to him? No way. They're not going to lie to Jesus in his, in, 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 there as he judges them. So understand what they're saying. Our, Lord, didn't we do these things? Did we not prophesy in thy name? And, and in thy name have cast out devils? And you think about all these people on TV that are charlatans and, and, and you know, preachers that are out there, the preachers that are more like creatures that are wanting to take every cent that you have in the name of God and in the name of Christ. And yet, in the midst of that, they use the scriptures, and sometimes they say things that are, you know, wow, he said something, but then the next moment they're, you know, reaching into your pocketbook again. Or all of these false revivals that are going on today in the world, going from laughter to all kinds of other weird stuff. And yet, sometimes people actually get healed at these places, you know, because God heals in spite of us, and in spite of all of that, and, and you know, because he heals who he wants to heal. 
You know, from time to time it happens. So what I'm saying is, this is what Jesus is saying, and this is so clear, that, that there will be those who will say, Lord, we, haven't we done these things, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? But notice where the emphasis, haven't we done them? But who really does them? And then will I profess unto, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. That's ominous. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And then Jesus illustrates. He says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. Now, you're hearing something. Unless you've got a lot of cotton in your ears, you're not hearing me. You're hearing something today. Amen? You're hearing me? Okay. So, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, obedience, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. We, we, we heard about the cornerstone today in our song, Cornerstone. The rock was Jesus. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. Isn't that sound like life today? And beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Founded upon the rock, the stone that is Christ. And everyone, now, he goes to the other side. And he says, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. You hear, but you don't do. Shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. No foundation, no rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, is your foundation the rock? Is the foundation of your life the rock that is Christ, our cornerstone. Is he your foundation today? Because if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. You will keep his commandments. Getting back to our text, the Lord now turns to another great reality in the life of, the, of a believer, and that is the truth of another comforter another comforter coming, the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses 16 through 18 and remember context here. We're still in context. And I will pray the Father, he says. Here's the promise now. If you love me, keep my commandments. And, which means if you love me and keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now let me, let me go, let's stay there in verse 17 just for a second. But you know him, he says, for he dwelleth with you presently, dwelleth with you presently, and shall be in you shortly. All right, that, that, that's a distinction we need to make here. It's in the language, it's in the grammar, both in the English and in the Greek. 
You know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, one thing that needs to be emphasized here is that Jesus promised a comforter. Not talking about a blanket, folks. He promised a comforter. In fact, another comforter is what he says. Another comforter. Well, who's been the, the comforter that they've had? Jesus. But he promises a comforter, in fact, another comforter. The word in the Greek for comforter is the word parakletos. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S, parakletos. We get the word paraclete, not parakeet, like a bird. You know, it's not the bird, but with an L. P-A-R-A-K or C E L. Or A-L, paraclete, par with the, with the L, yeah. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-E -E or C-L-E-T-E. Ah. What does that word mean? <laughs> That's where we're going. Okay, here we go. That speaks of a person who, who is summoned to come alongside to aid or help. The word para means to come alongside. And the word kletos is, is, is a word that means to, to aid or to help. So in other words, it is a helper in time of need. A helper in time of need. Now Jesus used the term to say in effect that he would send another helper. And the word that he uses for another is significant because it is also, it is the Greek word alos, A-L-L-O-S. And it means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Thus, he is sending his disciples an exact representation of himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, which makes a whole lot of sense when we say that there is one God in three persons. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. So there is no contradiction in having him be the exact representation of, of, of Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit being the exact representation of Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father. All right, wake up. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? 10.05. Okay. So, by the way, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit or to the Comforter as a person and not some impersonal force or some entity. The force be with you. No. He is a real person. And we know this from verse 17. Notice in verse 17 it says, But you know him, not it, you know him. For he, not it, he dwelleth with you. So Jesus is making it clear. He's giving him another comforter, and that comforter is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And he is a he and not an it. Now, let's get back to the comforter, because even the English word comforter is rich in meaning, as rich in meaning as the word paraclete is. Because the word comforter actually comes from two Latin words. It comes from the word con and forte. Con and forte. Con, I, I think you all know that. C-O-N, con, it means to be with or alongside. Like chile con carne. All right. So it means chili with carne. And then forte, of course, you know, that, that's pretty easy to understand, right? Uh, 
fuert fuerzas, forte, uh, Italian forte, you know, strength, strength. So it comes from two words meaning to be in company with, con, and to strengthen, which together as comforter means one who strengthens by companionship. One who strengthens by companionship. Now, the disciples had a comforter, and he was their companion for three and a half years. His name was Jesus. He came alongside of them. He fellowshiped with them. He shared with them. He strengthened them. He taught them. He rebuked them. He loved them. And in that, he comforted them. So <clears throat> it's a tremendous ministry. That same kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit for those who believe, same kind of ministry. The paraclete, the comforter, is one who comes to your side to help and to give aid. There's another word that is used in the first letter of John to the church that is the same Greek word parakletos, but a different English word. Let's, let's look at 1 John 2 verse 1 because this actually uh, strengthens the understanding of the word paraclete or parakletos for us. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. We have a parakletos, same word, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. As our advocate, Jesus is our attorney at law, because that's what an advocate is. One who comes alongside to help you. For example, a, an attorney at law, of course, comes alongside of you to help you in, our, in your legal difficulties. Jesus comes alongside of us as our attorney to help us in all of our daily difficulties, assisting us in every crisis, in every, in every circumstance, every situation that we go through in this life, strengthening us by his companionship. What is the great promise of Jesus before he ascends into heaven? I will be with you. Even unto the end of the world, I'll be with you. Well, how is he going to do that? With his other comforter. That is the Holy Spirit. He's come alongside of you. And it's as good as Jesus being alongside of you today. And the Holy Spirit doesn't get upset if you say, Jesus, thanks for being with me today. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm here, you know. I'm the Holy Spirit, you know, I have, I have my own personality. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He loves Jesus <laughs> in, that, in that sense because he represents Jesus. He's, a, he's the spirit of truth. Do you, do you understand that? So we know who our comforter is. Is it any wonder that Jesus said in verse 18, I will not leave you, look, look at this, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Now it makes sense. Because he is a comforter. And he sends another comforter. Because he's gone to be with the Father. So in verse 17, 
Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit teaching us the truths of God, which is something that the unsaved in the world cannot understand. Let me read that to you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. So that is because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the very same truth that Christ is. And remember what we said when we talked about Jesus as the truth. He is the, the perfect embodiment, the perfect communicator of the truth. And he is the perfect liberator with the truth. Remember, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. Now I emphasize the word cannot. Why? Because the text does not say the world would not. The world would not receive the truth. It does not say that. It says the world cannot receive the truth. Now, the philosophy of the world in a nutshell, and I think most of you know this, but the philosophy of the world in a nutshell is this. Ready? Seeing is believing. I won't believe unless I see. I never saw Jesus, so I don't believe in Jesus. I never saw Abraham Lincoln, but I know that he existed. But I heard a radio talk show host about 25, 30 years ago say that. You know, I'm an agnostic because I've never seen Jesus. I've never, you know, I have to see. See for myself. But, he says, I have to admit, I've never seen Abraham Lincoln. But I kind of know he existed because I've seen pictures. Wow, I don't know why I got into that story. It's so dumb. Seeing is believing. That so-called materialist philosophy makes it impossible impossible for unregenerate individuals. In other words, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, alive physically but dead spiritually. It makes it impossible for unregenerate individuals either to know or to receive the Spirit of God. Yet we know something. We know as believers that He is real, don't we? We know as believers that He's invisible, so we don't see Him, but we know He's there. And yet, the Holy Spirit does have a function with the world and toward the world. He does. And he makes it very clear, and it's very important that we understand this, because without understanding this, we won't know how it was that he came to us when we were unregenerate, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So here we go. Look at first of, of all at the fact that he has a ministry, and I speak of the Holy Spirit. He has a ministry of reproving to the world, a ministry of reproof of rebuke to the world. John chapter 16. Just go over a couple of pages where you are. And look at verses 8 through 11. Jesus is very clear when he says, and when he, the Spirit, comes, he will reprove the world of sin. When he comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. 
of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, we are going to study that in more detail when we get there, not too long from now. But there's the, there's the point. The, the Spirit of God has a ministry of reproof to the world. And that's important. When you think of the fact that when you were a dead sinner, dead spiritually, you didn't think you were in trouble. You didn't think that you would, you know, you didn't much care really about tomorrow or, or the future because you just live day by day, you know. And sinners, eh, you know, we're progressive now, we're liberal, we're, we're all kinds of, we got all kinds of ways of, you know, making ourselves feel good. Now, here's the important ministry, because it has affected each and every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ. And that is that the Holy Spirit has a ministry of regeneration, not just of reproof, not just of rebuke against sin. He has a ministry of regeneration. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Remember this, and you know it. Nicodemus comes asking a lot of questions of Jesus by night, and he says, and Jesus, the first thing he says to him, he says, verily, verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, that's physical life, and of the spirit, spiritual life, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but notice this, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And those who are born of the spirit of God are made alive. And now we can understand better what Paul said in, 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 second, uh, in the second chapter of Ephesians when he said, but God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were yet dead in our trespasses and, sin, trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ, for by grace are ye saved. Then later on, of course, in verses 8 and 9, he says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are his workmanship. So the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, made us alive. And we ought to be grateful and thankful to God for that regeneration. There's a third ministry that the Spirit has toward the, the world. And that is the Spirit, or I should say the ministry of restraining the world through the church. And this is something that we will see actually taking place right now as we wait for Jesus to come and take his, his people away, his church away in the rapture. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now the context here is about the revealing of the Antichrist. And so when you see what it says here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, it says, And now you know what withholds, or what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. What it is that is restraining the Antichrist from being revealed uh, outright to the world. And, and that's what he's saying. This is what's restraining that, that uh, knowledge. And by the way, I don't know if you ever get on YouTube, but there's a lot of people who already know who the Antichrist is. They, they'll tell you all kinds of names. Oh, this is the Antichrist here. This is the Antichrist here. They show different people, you know. No, no, it's, we don't know yet until what? Until 
the restrainer is taken out of the way, which is the Holy Spirit. Notice this. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. We know that. I mean, we're living in the midst of one of the worst uh, 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 and evil times that, that, that has ever been. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let, which means only he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And that is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is to right now through the church, we're still here. We're still a thorn in Satan's side. Amen? We are a thorn in his side because he wants to get things going. And hey, the Holy Spirit is still here doing what? Bringing more and more people to regeneration and to life in Christ before that day when finally the last Gentile comes in to the church and we can say, okay, time to go home. And when the church is taken out, the restrainer quits restraining. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is taken away? No. The Holy Spirit is always present because he's God. But the work of restraining ends when the church is taken out. Because the Holy Spirit is in the church today doing his work and bringing people to Jesus, bringing people into the kingdom of God, bringing people into the knowledge of the word of God. But when that time comes, then things are going to get pretty intense and thank the Lord for his timetable so that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit so Paul makes another uh, another point concerning the world and the spirit and this is an important one too and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 to 14 1 Corinthians 2 12 to 14 it says now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God so that that's an obvious thing but it's a very important obvious thing we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy, spirit, uh, the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's what we do every time we open the word of God, and we study it. But notice verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Now, do you know how we know that? Because that's where we were. There was a time when we thought that the, the Bible is a foolish thing to read. I don't understand it. I don't care to understand it. It's got all kinds of weird stories in it anyway. Right? Until God gave you light to understand. And then things made sense. So he says, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That, by the way, and may I say, sadly, is being lost in the church today. Spiritual discernment. And the reason why spiritual discernment is, is lacking in a lot of places is because we have put the Word of God, I say we, some people have put the Word of God aside. They don't want to study the Word of God anymore. They don't want to study prophecy anymore. They want to stick their heads in the sand. They say, well, maybe it'll all go away. No. Jesus predicted these things happening. Jesus predicted the world in the condition that it's in today. Paul and the, the, the prophets and other apostles predicted the world would be in the situation it is today. And what are we to do? We 
are to discern the spirits, to see if they're of God or not of God. 1 John chapter 4, the Word of God again. Okay, well, we've got to move on here. So the point is, getting back here to the singing with the world and the spirit, the point is that unbelievers, unbelievers reject Jesus. Unbelievers reject Jesus. They don't love him and care very little, if anything, about him. And therefore, they do not know the spirit of Christ. They cannot receive the spirit. But we are to know the Holy Spirit, both by experience and by his presence. Folks, in our text, there are two Greek prepositions that are used in regards to the Holy Spirit. Two Greek prepositions. Look at verse 17 again. John 14, verse 17. Jesus said, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. Now look at this. You know him, for he dwelleth with you. Notice the capital letters there. With you, and shall be in you. Those are the two Greek prepositions here. First, the Holy Spirit is with them. And remember I said, with them presently, in them shortly. So, the Holy Spirit is with them. The Greek word is para. Hey, we know about para, right? It's with, come alongside. The Holy Spirit was alongside of them at this point because the Lord Jesus hadn't yet died and rose from the dead. He hadn't given them the promise quite yet of the Father that they were to go wait for the promise, which was, of course, the, the Holy Spirit to come upon them. But we'll get to that in a moment. So today, now, in our day and time, the Holy Spirit is with people as he was with us, drawing them to Jesus. And once they receive Jesus, then, now, the Holy Spirit comes in them. In, and the, and the Greek word is en, E-N. So you have para and en, which means in. Para with en, in. Now, that's an important consideration when you consider the words of Paul in Romans 8, verse 9, where it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth or dwell in you, in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ in them, he is none of his. He doesn't, you don't belong to the Lord if the Spirit is not in you. The very fact that you said that Jesus Christ is Lord is evidence that the Spirit is in you because the Scripture says you cannot say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Except by the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> that's an important point of the Spirit now being in us. He was with us to bring us to the knowledge of Christ. He is in us now that we might say Jesus is Lord. There's one more Greek preposition that the scriptures use for the Holy Spirit, and that is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power. Remember, Jesus is saying this before he ascends into heaven. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. That's the other Greek preposition, upon. That is the word epi, E-P-I. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now the word upon is the Greek word, as I said, the word epi, E-P-I, which means uh, to come upon. For example, this is my epidermis, right? It is upon me. Epidermis. Got it? Over, upon my skin. All right. 
It's always good to go to school, <laughs> learn things, you know. Words never leave you now, hopefully. So the word upon is Greek epi, and it speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer for what reason, as Jesus said? To empower them to be witnesses of him. In his full work toward us, the Holy Spirit is with us, drawing us to Christ, para. And then the Holy Spirit is in us when we get saved, and. And also, after we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon us to what? To empower us for our labor in and for Christ, epi. And this is the reason why on, in Acts chapter 2, when the, when, when the 120 were gathered in the upper room and the, the wind of the Holy Spirit came into that room, all of a sudden there's these, these, these uh, uh, tongues of fire over each and every one of the 120 in that room that day. And they began to speak with other tongues. The praises of God that people heard outside of the window saying, man, are these guys drunk? It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But what's going on? They were praising God and praising Christ in the languages that these other people knew. And they were all Jews, by the way, from other regions, and they had all these languages that were being stated. And, and that's, that's the work. It, it had come upon them. So the Spirit was with them, in them, and upon them. The baptism, the saturation of the Holy Spirit upon us is so important and vital in our lives as believers. So in, this, in, in the case of our text then, and we're coming to a close right here, because I don't have a whole lot of time, so, got Okay, so in the case of our text, the Holy Spirit dwells with the believer, giving assurance, looking after, caring, guiding, and teaching us. But the Holy Spirit is also in the believer, communing, fellowshipping, sharing, and conforming the believer into the image of Jesus Christ. That's a tremendous work of the Spirit in your life, isn't it? Isn't it? All right, let's close with two verses here. 1 John 3, and both of, both of the verses are in 1 John. 1 John 3, verse 24 says, And he that keepeth his commandments, because this is the key. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he has given us. And then 1 John 4, verse 13. Hereby know we. Remember again, that famous phrase of John. This is how we know. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And if we keep his commandments, we rejoice in that because his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They should make us rejoice each and every day in the presence of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is the importance of understanding Christ in us. It is 